The threats facing the United States and its allies are not static. They grow, they transform. America's defense strategies and defense budgets need to respond with creativity and muscularity. In November, Congress employed a legislative tool known as a Continuing Resolution, a CR, to provide temporary funding to the U.S. military. Now, in December, there is another funding deadline looming. But this kind of uncertainty puts America's national security and our military personnel at heightened and unnecessary risk. The day the CR expired, my FDD colleague, Brad Bowman, discussed these and related issues with Congressman Jim Banks of Indiana. Representative Banks, a member of the House Armed Services and Veterans Affairs Committees, is himself a veteran who deployed to Afghanistan in 2014 and 2015, an experience that gives him an especially informed voice. Brad serves as Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. Brad previously worked as a top defense advisor in the U.S. Senate, as well as an Army officer, pilot, and assistant professor at West Point. You'll learn from both here on this special edition of Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981, who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Well, Congressman, it's an honor to have you uh, join us for this uh, podcast. Uh, thank you for making time. I know that uh, there's so many issues that you're confronting on the House Armed Service Committee, so I'm grateful that you'd spend some time with us. Great to be here. Great. Well, thank you. Perhaps we could just start with telling us a little bit about why you chose to run for office. Yeah, I'm, I'm halfway through my second term, which is really unbelievable. The last three years have absolutely flown by. Um, just prior to running for Congress, I, I served for six years in the state legislature um, during which time I um, also joined the Navy Reserves and served as a Supply Corps officer, which is the logistics or what we like to think of as the business part of the Navy. And uh, during that time, I deployed to Afghanistan, uh, 2014 and 15. Um, on my way back from Afghanistan, my my uh, member of Congress decided to run for the Senate, and uh, that opened up the seat. So I came home to an to a open seat situation immediately became a candidate, ran for office, and became the most recently deployed member of Congress in the process. So a very fresh experience just having come home from Afghanistan, going through the the mobilization and demobilization process as a, as a reservist, and uh, having a, a unique background um, with that fresh experience. I come from Northeast Indiana. We don't have a active duty military installation. We have a lot of, of business, a lot of uh, defense-related industry, Although it's a it's a fraction of the size that it was uh, pre sequestration budget control act, we're trying to do something about that right now. But um, I didn't I didn't really have a compelling case to make when I got to Congress uh, to serve on the Armed Services Committee because no one from my district had ever served on the Armed Services Committee before. But I went to uh, Speaker Ryan at the time and others in Republican leadership and said, 
Um, one, I have a I have a passion for these issues. I just got home from Afghanistan. I have a unique experience, and uh, would really like to serve on that committee. And after a a, a hard fought tussle with other friends, it, it was the most requested committee um, that year coming in in that uh, 2016 after the 2016 election. Um, it was the most requested committee. So felt felt very lucky to earn the uh, support of Republican leadership to receive one of a few spots that were open. As the listeners of Cliff's podcast probably know or may know, you know, the House Armed Service Committee is one of the more important committees in the House. Uh, it's the authorization. We like to think so. <laughs> exactly. It's the authorization committee for the Department of Defense. And as the congressman suggested, it is one of the most coveted. How do you think your service in the military has helped or informed your work on that important committee? Well, it's, it's, uh, it seems like ancient history three years ago. But remember at the time, I mean, we, we went from Obama-era defense budgets to Trump-era defense budgets. So I had a, a front row seat um, in my, my first, uh, the first year, uh, really my, the, the length of my first term, and seeing what type of leadership it took uh, to to advance uh, the type of defense budgets that we need to get our military back on its feet to and to make up for um, at that point eight to ten years of um, of defense cuts that brought um, our military to its knees to where it was pre-Trump. I I believe that the most important um, uh, a victory of of the Trump administration and of Congress during that time is restoring defense budgets to where they are today. Um, so I got to see what that looked like, what that type of leadership looked like. And, and, and really, it's not a – when it comes to defense budgets, let me uh, make this very clear. It's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's um, defense-minded members of Congress from both parties working um, to convince our colleagues who aren't as defense-minded why this is important, why readiness has fallen behind because of defense cuts post-Budget uh, Control Act sequestration. So I believe, I mean, you you want, um, oftentimes as a member of Congress, you sit around and think, is this really a fulfilling experience? Is this really productive, especially these days? Um, but looking back at those three years, there's not a, a doubt in my mind that we've made a difference when it comes to restoring defense budgets to over $700 billion baseline. I mean, now, now we're about to pass a NDAA that will authorize $750 billion baseline. Um, that's something that I'm I'm very proud of, having served, getting to Congress, and and being a part of in my early days. That's great. Uh, one of the reasons I think it's it's important and helpful to have veterans serving in Congress is because, as you know from your your service, sir, that it's um, you know in the foxhole there's no Republican or Democrat. Or when you de when you deployed, you know, your first question wasn't you know do you agree with me politically? It's like are you competent? Are you well trained? Are you ready to do you have my back in, in that key moment? And my sense is, having worked a little bit on the Hill, is that people with a military background tend to be more focused on getting things done, a little less concerned about what party you're from. Is, is that yeah, been your experience as no well? No doubt about it. In yeah. fact, um, people at home have a skewed view of, of uh, Washington, D.C. from the 24-hour news cycle of the bickering back and forth between parties. Um, I, I, have, I have great relationships with Democrat members who I work with on the Armed Services Committee, on the Veterans Committee, and across the board. I mean, I think you find that more, the the reality more in Congress is that we really do get along. We really do all have a vision and mission in mind of advancing our country. But it, but my best friends in Congress are members who also served, who also wore the uniform, 
and many of them happen to be Democrats as well. So we serve, we go into the Armed Services Committee, we go we uh, on the Veterans Committee as well. We work hard on these issues together. We introduce bipartisan efforts. When it comes to the Armed Services Committee, I mean, that's always been a bastion of, of bipartisanship. But but you're absolutely right. Um, those members, uh, I, I can think of, if, if I start naming off names, I'll forget some, but Jimmy Panetta and um, Seth Moulton, who I, at some point, I'm sure we'll talk about our future of defense task force that he and I are co-chairing and leading, Ruben Gallego, uh, and uh, Andy Kim, a lot of members across the board who are Democrats that I treasure those friendships and relationships with on the other side of the aisle. Can you tell us a little bit about that task force and what yeah. you're, what you're doing, plan to do with that? I'm, I'm really excited about this effort. I mean, often in, in Washington and Congress, especially, we, we think in one-year cycles, right? I mean, in fiscal year cycles. These days, when it comes to CRs, we're thinking in less, um, even even less than a one-year uh, period of time. But uh, what Seth and I have been tasked with, uh, from both uh, Chairman Adam Smith and the Armed Services Committee, ranking ma- ranking member Thornberry, is to set up a task force, which is a unique animal within the rules of the Congress. And I'll I'll come back to that in a moment. But the the mission of the the, the future of Defense Task Force is to not just think it, think about the next year, but thinking about think about the the next 10, 20, 30 years, how we can foster the type of innovation um, in our national defense um, to prepare for the threats of the future. So that there are, what, what we're finding is that there are a lot of uh, political interests, a lot of sacred cows that are protected and authorized on the Armed Services Committee. And sometimes we need to really take an honest look at what platforms, what uh, technologies um, maybe are outdated that we're authorizing today that prevent us from uh, authorizing the type of innovation and fostering the innovation base that will allow us to develop the technologies for the future. That, If you take a, a look at all of this from just the perspective of the U.S. versus um, China alone, that's that's how China has surpassed us in, in so many ways, so many technologies from hypersonics, um, from the their ability to gather information quicker, uh, more effectively than we do. Um, there are lots of areas that we need to take a more of an honest, deep dive look into the future. And that that's what this task force has been uh, ultimately tasked with. Is it challenging to peel yourself away from the daily demands that a congressman confronts to think big thoughts, you know, in five to ten year time frames? Have you found it, that really, it, really, it is. Um, but but Seth and I have accepted that challenge along with the with other members of the committee. Uh, the, a task force, uh, per the rules of the House of Representatives, can only last for six months, so it will expire um, within a within a six month period of time. Uh, we're already one month into that, so that it's the time is flying by and then, then at the end of the um, at the six month period we're tasked with publishing a report about our findings and um, already we've had a number of we've had one of uh, a committee hearing that's open but then on a weekly basis we're inviting experts in to come and and brief us oftentimes in, in uh, classified settings on a on a personal note um, when I check my phone at the door and go into the skiff it always means that my I can focus more <laughs> right. and listen to what the experts right. have to say. So, it's been a very a very uh, rich and re- rewarding experience already to begin to take a look at um, what the future looks like, how we prepare for it, and what are the what are the the barriers that exist, whether it's a culture or a mindset at the Pentagon, whether it's just the 
the process of the Congress and, and um, authorizing and pr protecting sacred cows um, to take a look at what, what we need to change or shift in the mindset today that can that can help us be more effective. Um, Congressman, you're about a month or two into the task force, as I understand it, the task force work. I'd be interested in any uh, in lessons learned thus far, any progress made that you might like to update us on. Yeah, we, we, we kicked off the uh, task force with a hearing. Uh, we heard from Senator Jim Talent um, as the Republican invited guests, and then Michelle Flournoy, uh, who spoke as well. They were, they were both terrific. They both set the tone for what the task force um, is about moving forward. And we talked about we talked about attitudes and um, the uh, the culture at the Pentagon that sometimes um, limits our ability to innovate and uh, foster the type of innovation that we need. Uh, one key takeaway from that hearing for me was um, Senator Talent, um, in his own way, talked about um, establishing a culture um, at the Pentagon of not being afraid to fail. I mean, if the if the Pentagon feels like they've Hit it out of the ballpark every single time. That means that they're not they're not um, taking a approach of risk enough, um, but also calling on Congress to sometimes to back off and not uh, not uh, hamper or hamstring uh, the Pentagon when they do fail. Because we need to recognize that it's going to be the type of uh, that the the level of risk that we need uh, moving forward means that sometimes the uh, the Pentagon needs to needs to take more risk. And uh, that, that was a key takeaway for me. Yesterday, we heard from uh, the Rand Corporation. We talked about how, um, in their estimation, um, a lot of the acquisition reforms over the past four or five years, many of them, by the way, that were brought about by uh, by Mr. Thornberry's efforts on the committee uh, in Hask, uh, that those have been largely effective. The, if the acquisitions process is working, really, it's about who's who's developing the requirements and who's come, who's who's uh, on the on the very front end of who's who is um, setting the process up to work with uh, to begin with. So th those are the types of the issues that we've dug into so far. But we have we have five months to go, and I hope that this will be a very productive and substantive experience. Well, that, that sounds excellent, and it couldn't be more important because you know if if you and I had a dollar for every time we've had a, a Department of Defense acquisition program that goes on more than a decade. Um, uh, you know, and then finally arrives in, in the hands of our troops at a point when the technology at that point is almost out of date. Uh, you know, you and I would be wealthy men if we had a dollar every time that happened. And, and it seems to me, and I'd be interested in your thoughts, the rate of technological change is so rapid that we can't do it that way anymore. We have to be quicker, but when we're quicker, we make mistakes. And that goes to your point about accepting reasonable levels of risk so that we can move as quickly as we need to move. Uh, that, that's very. That's a very important um, uh, takeaway that um, that, that and that's the type of attitude that we need to foster. And I, there, there are we have great leadership at the Pentagon currently that I think wants to work with Congress to create that type of um, that type of uh, mindset moving forward. No, that's great. As you've had a little bit of time to kind of look out over the horizon, um, how have your thoughts changed or evolved in terms of the leading grand strategic threats that the United States confront? If you had to say to your constituents, what's what's the top threat that the United States confronts right now, what would you say? Without a doubt, the, the, the greatest existential threat that we face today is China and, and their ability to, to look so far into the future and prepare for the future. Their, their more long-term approach versus our election cycle um, uh, approach of every two to four years changing leadership and mindsets. So this will, I know this isn't a political podcast, but 
the greatest political issue that would be on the ballot in 2020 is how how serious are we about addressing the China threat? So when we look at the future of Defense Task Force, for me, I can't speak for my co-chair, Seth Moulton, but for me, it's the China threat and how we innovate um, and and, uh, prepare the Pentagon, um, or or really how we prepare a whole of government approach uh, to tackling the China threat in a way that we haven't today. How, how would you answer a constituent that says, I really don't give a darn about what happens in the South China Sea or the Taiwan Strait. Why does that matter to me in Terre Haute, Indiana? Yeah. Um, in our district, um, yeah, I get, I, I get, I don't get those questions I, I, <laughs> because, uh, because it's intuitive for my, for my, uh, my constituents. Oh. They, they get the China threat hmm. and, um, it, because they, because Inherently, they understand that. You know, I, I take my dad for example. My dad is retired from a automotive factory, made axles all of his life. Um, he's seen the factory that he worked for diminish. It's a fraction of what it used to be because of so much off um, offshoring to uh, Mexico or or parts coming from China. Um, he's seen what he's seen how China has wrecked the economy. But you know, my my, my constituents know that the American-made appliances that they bought. 20 years ago um, at, at whatever store they bought it from that lasted for 10 or 20 years doesn't exist anymore, but the appliance that they buy from China is broken in a year and they have to replace it. So, and they're, and they're paying, they're paying the higher price because of the American made uh, equipment or appliance. The company is out of business. And these are, these are intuitive issues for, my constituents in Northeast Indiana, because they they understand that China has done much to wreck our economy, but they also sort of in, in inherently recognize the the uh, the military or national security threat too. So I don't spend a lot of time explaining or defending my almost at this point um, unilateral focus on China because my my constituents largely get it. Wow. It occurs to me that uh, we have uh, efforts, as we should, focused on the, you know, the five to 10 year time frame. We have a national security strategy, a national defense strategy um, that are so important uh, and that you're familiar with based on your service on the House Armed Service Committee. But at the same time, you know, we're not able to do the basic blocking and tackling sometimes and passing defense budgets and auth- appropriations and authorizations on time. And, and as you know better than me right now, uh, the Department of Defense does not have, we're into the new fiscal year, yet the Department of Defense doesn't have an authorization bill and they don't have an appropriations bill. It occurs to me that people on the committees, uh, on the House Armed Services Committee, understands how that hurts our troops. Um, but maybe perhaps, dare I say, some of your members who don't serve on those committees don't appreciate the damage to the same degree. If you were explained to another member in the House of Representatives who's, who's less focused on security issues, how would you explain the damage of a, of a, of a long-term continuing resolution on national security and our, and our military? Yeah, I, I actually believe most of my colleagues get it, um, and they, they don't like it. They don't like the short-term CRs. It's the breakdown of the political process for both sides to come together and negotiate longer term deals. Although, you know, for the first time in several years, we did that last year. We we neg- we, we set up a year-long, uh, fiscal year-long uh, budget and funded national defense, and everyone was excited about that. We cl- we slapped each other on the back and we got it done. Now now we're right back to right. where we were before that with a another short-term CR that just passed the Senate today that, right. uh, that I think lasts for three or four weeks. And that supposedly gives us more time to negotiate a longer term deal. We'll be back in two or three weeks, and I'm not sure that 
anything will change. Yeah. So um, as far as convincing my colleagues, I mean, the, uh, you know, there's not a day that goes by that Secretary Esper or General Milley or someone from the Pentagon doesn't come and make that case uh, for me on my, you know, or, or uh, uh, make the case that this is uh, detrimental to readiness, is detrimental to our ability to getting back to China. How, how can we um, uh, invest in in longer term technologies if we're only if we're funding the government, funding the Pentagon at uh, two or three weeks at a time or two or three months at a time? We're never going to get there with that approach. So that that's a sad indictment on the system, the, the process that we have in the Congress today and ultimately the lack of leadership to get it done. I had the honor to interview uh, Mac Thornberry, the senior Republican on the House Armed Services Committee on May 8th, and he said basically that exact same thing. And then Secretary McCarthy at a, another event said the same thing. And I would note that uh, the Army Secretary spoke at another think tank today and reiterated many of the same points you just said, including the fact that, uh, as you may know better than me, uh, 30 to 45 days ago, the Army ordered all of its commands to reduce their operations and maintenance expenditures by 2% because of the continuing resolution. And he, he explained uh, to the listener something you understand, that that has impact on training, uh, which ultimately impacts readiness, of course. And he also talked about how $3.5 billion in modernization funding is frozen as a result. Um, and so just uh, very much underscoring what you just said. There, there, there is no one in the, in the House of Representatives I respect more than Mac Thornberry, who's unfortunately retiring. Um, when he speaks in the conference, is like the voice of God. He's he's eminently <laughs> he's respected yeah, by he's gonna be all missed. of my colleagues, yeah. Repub- Republicans and Democrats. And he said today that the, a, a year-long uh, CR would be a $5.6 billion cut from our deterrence efforts yeah. uh, combating Russia and China. Um, a lot of talk on both sides of the aisle about how important that is, but yes. a year-long CR would hold us back from being That's able right. to contain those That's right. those threats. So uh, when he says it, people listen, yeah. but that doesn't mean that necessarily right. um, they're willing to do the right thing and come to the yeah. table. And that that take what what Mac Thornberry has taught me in three short years. This is my my second year as a conferee on the NDA, NDAA. Mm. Is that this really is all about compromise? Yeah. A negotiation includes yeah. maybe accepting. Um, priorities from the other side of the aisle that I might not agree with. But at the end of the day, it's important to get these NDAAs passed, get them done, because ultimately they're very important. He also stressed, as this is the first time in in, uh, recent memory that an NDAA is on life support, um, as it is right now in the conference committee, that it would be very detrimental to our our, um, HASC, um, the, the, the NDAA process, the significance of a committee that's passed an NDAA every year for the past 56 years or so, um, that if we don't get it done, that's a bad precedent to set moving forward. We'll diminish our ability to be effective in the future. What some of the uh, listeners may know is that Cong- the way Congress, both the House and Senate, organize them themselves, is that there's an authorization committee responsible for, for each of the major department or agencies in the federal government. And the House and Senate Armed Services Committees is one of the last committees that are passing an annual authorization bill on a regular basis. And uh, thank goodness they are, but it's kind of sad that we've come to this point. Um, and if if that were to become the new norm, failing to pass an authorization, that I think that would not only be sad, but it would uh, perhaps uh, damage our national security quite twi- quite tangibly. Um, seems to me there's a, maybe a moral component here. I, I'd be interested to know whether you think I'm overstating this a little bit, that 
you know, when people raise the right hand like you've done to say, I want to join the military, I'm willing to put myself in harm's way, we're going to send you to go uh, confront our enemies overseas so we don't have to confront them on the, our streets here, um, that we have a moral obligation to give people who raise their right hand everything they need to accomplish their mission and return home safely. Am I overstating that or would you agree with that? It's a great way to put it. I mean, I, for, for so many of us, that's why we serve on the committee. That's why we came to Congress to begin with, to be a part of this effort. Again, it was a, a it took a bipartisan effort to restore defense budgets to where they are in the Trump era, um, which really mirrors. We haven't seen this since the early Reagan era, um, when uh, when when President Reagan came to office and had to restore significantly restore and boost defense budgets. We're still benefiting from that today, up to this point. And now, now President Trump, um, and in the in this era, working with Congress to do the same thing. That's what so many of us came to Congress to be a part of. In some of my research lately, I've been looking at how the U.S. can work more effectively with uh, key allies and partners to shorten the time span that it takes from idea to fielding, make it more uh, cost efficient to avoid capabilities gap. You reference capabilities uh, uh, gaps. And, you know, uh, one example is uh, active protect. You know, you, you've served in the military, active protection systems on our army tanks. You know, these, these are, this is technology that allows our tanks to intercept incoming rockets before they hit the tank and hurt our troops. Well, the Russians have had that for decades, right? The Israelis have had that fielded since 2011. Yet General Milley testified earlier this year that the U.S. defense industry, as great as it is, is not able yet to produce it to the degree that the Israelis have. So we're now procuring the trophy active protection system. And so that's an example how if we maintain these allies and partnerships that we have, that we there can be benefit going both ways that benefits our, our troops. And so um, it seems like as we're looking at reforming the Pentagon, we also have to look at how we can work more effectively with key partners and allies. And, and that can be, that? That, uh, absolutely agree, but that, that can be culturally and, and politically difficult to do yeah, if we don't, absolutely. if we're not willing to rethink um, how we do business if we're not willing to maybe sacrifice some sacred cows that members of Congress protect because because they have business business interests or constituent interests in their their district that benefit from those programs that we we found um, in the early days of this task force that there's a lot of interest um, in the in industry for that very reason. I mean, where are we going to go with this? Are we going to advocate for? Um, replacing uh, some longstanding programs with with new programs. I don't think that's really what the what the task force we're not afraid to go down that path. But I don't think that's really what this task force is about. It's more about creating the type of processes and mindset that will allow us to better foster innovation. There, there's also a key component to this and that's the that is the the workforce component. Um, how do we foster um, in our education system today, the type of uh, skills and workforce ability to um, uh, to supply the types of of uh, of um, of skill sets across the board that it takes to uh, to accomplish this too. So I imagine that we'll be digging into that. I recently participated in the the uh, the Reagan Institute's um, a task force uh, related to the innovation base. It's very similar to what we're doing on the the future defense task force on the armed services committee, and we tried to dig into those issues, preparing the giving the uh, uh, finding the, the the right approach to developing the STEM skills uh, in the workforce to develop and foster the type of innovation base that we need. That's great. You mentioned STEM, and uh, you know there was a, a statistic from a year or two ago 
that 25% of graduate students in the US in, in STEM are Chinese nationals. Now, I'm sure the vast majority of those individuals are you know, good intention people trying to get an education, but a small percentage, wittingly and un, or unwittingly, are not. Uh, um, and, and so that's, as you know, where a lot of our innovation occurs. So as we're investing that innovation, if we're not careful, uh, we're going to be uh, enabling our adversaries' ability to develop systems that they're going to use against us in future battlefields. How do we maintain our open democratic system and be welcoming to the world, maintain the best university? You know, Indiana's home to some of our best universities, uh, Purdue and Notre Dame. Uh, many of those students are, are come from foreign countries. How do we get that right? Maintain our characters a free and open society, but also protecting the innovation development that's required at our universities to equip our troops. Yeah, indeed. Um this is where it gets back to taking the to developing the whole of government approach. I mean, I've, I've introduced legislation this year that would protect uh, uh, sensitive research conducted on U.S. college campuses from being infiltrated by by uh, Chinese um, tentacles through whether it's through um, Chinese related grants to colleges or um, you know you've, you've heard of the. Conf- Confucius Institutes and the uh, the talent the talent programs and these sort of these are snakes in the grass that are set up very intentionally by the Chinese to infiltrate and and getting back to their ability to their their ability to compile information and uh, and and coerce Chinese students to provide them with uh, findings of of key research or even intellectual property that they are able to steal from us. Uh, that's conducted on college campuses. So we can do that very easily. I mean, we can't. We shouldn't be afraid to um, place uh, new uh, protections on who is involved in research. Or I, th- I found through testimony of the Armed Services Committee this year that um, we oftentimes, when when we when the federal government funds sensitive research on a college campus, there's no mechanism to track the the students who are involved in that research. Well, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, if 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 uh, if the Department of Defense or Department of Energy are paying for uh, college uh, colleges or universities to conduct uh, research, we should know who is involved in that research and where that information might flow after the research is conducted. That's not that we currently don't have the safeguards in place to do that, and the Chinese have benefited from that. That makes total sense to me. I I spoke with a military officer recently. He was studying artificial intelligence at one of our top universities. And he said the large majority of individuals in that particular program were foreign nationals, and many of them were from China. And so, uh, you know, every one of those individuals has to get a visa. So you'd think the state, you know, it would not be unreasonable, right, perhaps for Congress to say, hey, Department of State, here's the burden of proof we expect you to go through before you issue you that visa. Put, you know, the, the onus is on perhaps the foreign student to demonstrate that they're not affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party or the PLA. I mean, I don't know. Is that too much? <laughs> not too much at all. In fact, in our, in our legislation, Protect Our Universities um, Act that we introduced earlier this year, we um, we, we would allow for a waiver for a student, for a foreign national student from China, Iran, Russia, or North Korea specifically to participate in research if they were granted a waiver by the DNI. Um, that creates a step that would allow um, students who who maybe, maybe we do trust um, to participate or has something to offer to still participate, but go, going through a step to, again, put the, the burden of proof on them to show that that's the case. So those are the types of safeguards that don't exist. 
China has fully exploited this lax environment that we have when it comes to research on college campuses. And unfortunately, we haven't done anything about it. Well, Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. I, I think uh, your constituents are fortunate to have someone like you who takes national security seriously and is putting in uh, the time and effort behind the scenes to keep them safe. So thanks for joining us. It's great Appreciate to be here. Thank it. you very thank much. You. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.